While they're heading out, let's go to the Lord in prayer, center ourselves for the God's Word this morning. Gracious God, pour into us as we continue to talk about what it means to have this pocket prayer, this idea that this small prayer, this simple prayer can change our lives. Help us to focus on what part of this speaks to us the most today. As we talk about you are good and I need help, where is our heart? Where does it need to be? Challenge us, convict us, and guide us. Open us up to your presence this morning. We ask humbly. And the people of God said together, Amen. So this past week, we started our September sermon series, Before Amen, The Power of a Simple Prayer. And we learned what that simple prayer was. So how did you do this week? Did you begin the challenge of saying that simple prayer each and every day? I'm not asking for any hands. But if life is going to change for us, if we're going to make a difference, it actually requires action on our part. Otherwise, they're just words. Keep trying. If you've missed a day, then go back to it. Four minutes a day for four weeks. That's the challenge. And last week we focused on learning the whole pocket prayer that's simple, it's easy. And we don't focus on just the first words, Father or Daddy. This week we focus on the next part. You are good and I need help. Say, you are good and I need help. One of the refrains that many of us know is that God is good all the time and all the time. What? God is good. We know that. That's how it works, how it comes together. We find a great example of that in Psalm 25, especially verses 7 and 8. And today, because of the lack of screens and everything else, you're going to want to use the YouVersion app. If you've never used it, I would invite you to use it for sure. If you are using it, go ahead and save it, because otherwise it goes away after worship. Or you have to pull your Bible out and actually look through it. You won't be able to just visually look at everything today. Psalm 25, verses 7 and 8, talk about a new series of 15 psalms starting then which primarily record David or the psalmist's personal experience. These psalms are more personal. They're quiet. They're intimate. And this little prayer in Psalm 25 might be entitled A Prayer of Remembrance. Because in these words, the psalmist speaks of the memory of God. And the two verses that stand out for us today are Psalm 25-7 that says, You are good, Lord. In verse 8 that says, Good and upright is the Lord. And the psalmist finds blessing as a result of trusting God in Psalm 86, where David's first perk as a believer is steadfast love. Psalm 86 verse 5 tells us that God is good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. And then we see the second perk the psalmist gained by being a follower of God, that God answers my prayers and your prayers. The psalm writer says in verse 7 of that same psalm, that in my day of trouble I call on you, 
for you will answer me. Run Rider says that when we pray, things do start to happen. One is being transformed. One's whole life is being drawn to God and the results we thought were completely unconnected suddenly become vibrantly connected. Have you ever prayed about something and then realized how all the things fit together and you were just trying to make sense of it and the prayer really helped you to understand God's plan so much better? You are good. Say it again. You are good. Say it again. You are good. One more time. You are good. That's the first part of the prayer. Father, you are good. God is good. Good in ability, good in heart. Max says that most people suffer from small thoughts about God. In an effort to see Him as our friend, we have lost His immensity. In our desire to understand Him, we have sought to contain Him. The God of the Bible could not be contained. He brought order out of chaos and created creation. With a word, He called Adam out of the dust and Eve out of a bone. He consulted no committee. He sought no counsel. He has no peer. Isaiah 46, 9 sums it up really well. It says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. The genie in Aladdin, both the original one, Robin Williams, that many of us saw years ago, and the new one with Will Smith, both sing a song that says, You've never had a friend like me. Because of his power and what He can do. That's nothing compared to God and what God can do. Hebrews 1.3 says, From the tiniest microbe to the mightiest mountain, He sustains everything by the mighty power of His command. You see, God has authority over the world and God has authority over our world, our sleep patterns our eating habits, our salary, the traffic of our commute. Help me, oh God. How many times have you said that in the morning before you started driving because you, you just know something's going to happen and so you're just praying, Lord, get me there before two hours. There are arthritis in your joints, your health. God reigns over all of these. God is never surprised. God's power is unsurpassed. God has no hidden or selfish motives. James 1.17 says, There is nothing deceitful in God, nothing two-faced, nothing fickle. God loves with a good love, forgives with a good forgiveness. And God's goodness is a major part of the Hebrew Bible and especially throughout all the Psalms. Why? Well, Max says that if God were only mighty... We would just salute Him. But since He is merciful and mighty, we can approach Him. Sounds like the words from one of the hymns that we sang during the summer, Merciful and Mighty. It's no wonder the psalmist at the end of his personal psalms that started in Psalm 25, by the time he gets to Psalm 34.8, he invites us to taste 
and see that the Lord is what? Good. To taste and see that the Lord is good. Because a glimpse of God's goodness changes us. And Max says that there's a lot, we make a lot of unnecessary messes. Do you make a lot of unnecessary messes in your life that you really don't have to make? You're going to have to wake up today. Everybody's just kind of like standing there like this. It's like, this is not a talk. It's, it's called a sermon, and it's interactive. I just want you to know that. I'm, I, could, I could record it and just play it instead, right? Thank you, Dan. Thank you for that. That's very good. We make a lot of messes. And Max says we can change that. He suggests, I love the way he says this, before you face the world, face your father. Before you face the world, face your father. So in the morning, and he talks about it in the book and this long, lengthy thing about just how that might look, but I mean, just imagine if you actually talked to God first thing in the morning before you did anything else. So our normal morning routine might look like something like trying to drag ourselves out of bed and our hair is all messed up and we're trying to get a shower and we're turning the TV on, which is the wrong choice in the morning to figure out, oh, what the traffic's going to look like. Well, it's horrible. Just go ahead and turn it back off. You'll see a few homicides, a lot of bad news, a lot of stuff that you don't really want to know about, and you're going to get into your car. Before you do all that, you're already going to be so depressed and down and worried about your ride in that you can't even focus on what you're supposed to focus on. Maybe you grabbed your coffee, maybe you didn't, maybe you forgot. You did all this stuff, you forgot, round the door because you were running late because you got up too late or whatever else it is, and your whole day has already started off in the wrong way. Why? Because we focus on ourselves. What if you gave those four minutes to God before you did anything else, before you rushed around trying to get everything or turn the TV on or did anything else, maybe just leave it off and spend those four minutes just being in prayer, facing your Father before you face the world. Praying the simple prayer, you are good, I need help, going on from there, and be able to get yourself situated so that, you know, you've ever noticed that maybe, maybe isn't that things were any worse that day, but because you were worse that day, they, things got worse? Because attitude changes everything. And if we get the right attitude at the beginning of the day, and we bring God into that, and that's the first thing that we do, it can change the way everything else goes. Don't underestimate the power of this moment. You opened the door to God and God was able to look into your heart. You're able to spend time. Just opening the door allows God to be present with us. But you have to open the door. God's not going to force God's self into your routine in the morning to push everything else out of the way while you run around helter-skelter trying to get yourself ready to go. God will be lost in the dust of all of that. But see, faith sneaks in while despair is dozing. Father, you are good. Good enough to love me, to care for me, to come for, to come for me. You're good. If we begin the whole day like that, then we'd start off a different way. And the second part of it is, and I need help. Say, I need help. So you are good, and I need help. I have all these great pictures for all these illustrations. And none of them I can use. So I'm going to do my best to describe to you the things that really need a picture to be describing them. 
About a year ago, I bought what I thought would be the coolest Lego set ever. Who likes Legos in here? Anybody like Legos? Got a few Lego followers in here? That's awesome. It's a model of the big house, which is the Michigan Wolverine Stadium. You can get all the stadiums and Legos now. It's not Lego brand, but it's, you know, Lego block type things. The largest college football stadium in America. And at first, Hannah was going to do this for me as a present until she realized and that she needed help. And it was much more complex than we ever expected. I took a picture of the box last night to be able to show you too. And on the box, it looks so pretty. It's all, all done. And there's a whole bunch of fans down here watching the game and all of this. And then over in the right-hand corner, it says it has 2,700 pieces. 2,700 pieces. Lord, I need help. When I looked at it and we began looking at it, what you don't understand is it's about this big. So it's 2,700 pieces in a space this big, which means the pieces are about the size of your fingernail or smaller. And if you know about Legos, when you put them together, and sometimes you put them together the wrong way, they're almost impossible to pull apart. Luckily, this company understood that and actually had a tool for being able to pull them apart because obviously they knew that would happen with pieces this small. There are ones and twos that are literally this big. Lord, I need help. Max says you probably experienced something similar. In the words of the devil on many toys that say, some assembly required. Anybody had that experience? Some assembly required. That means absolutely nothing. It's a lie. What you wanted as parents, you wanted a gift for your child. That's all you wanted. What you got was a project. Sometimes a project for your life. You moan and groan and wonder if it's worth it. He says this, I'm convinced the devil indwells in the details of toy assembly. Hell releases tiny minions into the workstation of the unsuspecting parent so the little devils can scamper off with brackets and bolts and screws. Somewhere in perdition in a warehouse, there are stolen toy parts. I experienced that time and time again as I couldn't find the next building block that I needed. I had them in little tubs and had them separated, but there's 2,700 pieces. You have to just dig through till you find the thing that you needed, and they were mostly similar colors. And then I had to keep tearing it apart and realizing that when I was at step 30, that somehow at step 15 I had missed something or moved one too far because you had to count on the thing exactly where they go. And if you're off by one, it throws every other step off. And finally, after more than a month, I'm going to bring the pictures next week because you're going to see this thing finished. It was a struggle that I did not want to do. And had I known how, what it was going to be when we started it off, I may have just said, I'll put you back in the box and you look really pretty all put together. I might pay somebody to put it together. If that wasn't enough of a challenge, I decided to tackle fixing our 13-year-old LG refrigerator, my version of Zen and refrigerator repair, but there was no Zen in it. There was no peace. Everything was going great. 
I'm not mechanical by nature, but I fixed it before. Another piece that had come off, it had, it had the water line needed to be fixed. I figured I'd do that. You can watch videos. It's you know pretty simple stuff. 30 minutes, be done with it. No problem. That's what it talked about it being. Got the new part. I wish I could show you the pictures. The new part doesn't look like the old part, but it is the exact same part. They redesigned it. That should have been the first clue, but it wasn't. Took everything out. They show you in the picture of the whole assembly. If you're solenoid, the bottom comes out like this, and there's all this line to be able to do it. My line's way too short, so my hand is back in the, in the refrigerator trying to put the things on like this while i got this space this big to work in. Finally get it all connected, and what I realize is there are two extra wires now that don't go anywhere on the new part. It's been redesigned. There's only one electrical connector on one part of it, and there were four wires for it before. I'm like, well, maybe they're not necessary anymore. Just let's cover them up, make sure they don't shock anything up, and let's just plug it all up to the other wires. I took pictures of how the wires were arranged and everything, the colors, to make sure all that. Plugged it all up, nothing happens. I'm like, great. I discovered, like Max talks about, that sometimes the struggle is too great for strength. It didn't matter what I was going to do. It wasn't going to change what the part had in front of me. I can't make it work the way that I wanted to make it work. Inevitably, something seemed to be missing. What I didn't know was that they didn't tell you until you went deep. I went to appliancepartspro.com, great place to go. Look at the videos, everything else. You look in the Q&As, Number, question number 83 from 2015 says, you're going to need a new wiring harness to go with this new part because they changed the way that it works. They didn't tell you that when you ordered the part. There it is. The wiring harness has two less wires on it. They've all been wired together now. And lickety split, it would all fit together. But there was no way it was going to work without getting the wiring harness that I needed to get. Max says the pieces of life don't fit together either. And when they don't, take your problem to Jesus. I went to Google. Google solved my problem. Many problems in life cannot be solved by Google. They have to be solved by Jesus. Amen? Mary, the mother of Jesus, did that too. If you're going to land somewhere and follow along with me in Scripture, it's going to be John 2 today, 1 through 7 or 8. And you can land there with me. That's the last piece of Scripture that we're looking at. It begins like this. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. I love this Scripture because it's just an ordinary, mundane event in Jesus' life. But you never get to see him acting like he's just a normal, everyday person. This wedding is nothing. It's not royalty. It's not somebody who's in charge of anything. It is a normal, everyday Jewish wedding that the family was invited to and that his disciples and him were invited to as well. This is his first trip with the disciples together. He hasn't even shown them anything yet. And while they were there, it says the wedding party, verse 3, ran out of wine. The chief steward either underestimated the size of the crowd or the appetite of the guests, the depth of the wine vats. Who knows? You had one job and you failed. 
As a result, the bride and groom were out of wine. Life leaked. My refrigerator leaked. You know one of those little lines that goes to the top that goes to your ice maker has the coldest water known to man when it starts all coming out at the same time when the line's taken off? It's cold. Water's everywhere. What are you going to do with it? Life leaks. And then Mary, the mother of Jesus, steps in. So it's really interesting that Mary, of all people at this wedding, for some reason decides that she wants to step in. We don't even know why. And I love this scripture because the Son of God listens to his mother. The Son of God listens to his mother. That's the whole thing it's all about. But the story of the swing vote we talked about in the state of Tennessee for women's right to vote, the one swing vote listened to his mother, which changed everything. After all, who knew Jesus better than she did? She carried him for nine months, heard his first words, witnessed his first steps. She was the ultimate authority on Jesus. We, begin, we forget somehow that Jesus was not, he was a kid. He had an ordinary growing up life just like all of us as a baby and the terrible twos and the worst threes and everything else. He had all of that. She was his mother. Not just some figurehead. So on the rare occasion she speaks, which is not very often in the text anywhere, it's like E.F. Hutton. Whenever Mary speaks, everybody listens. The mother of Jesus said to him, the mother of Jesus, didn't say like Mary, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So? Mary didn't order Jesus to do it. She didn't say, Jesus, they're out of wine. I know what you can do, so go ahead and get it done. She didn't try to fix the problem herself. She wasn't critical. If only they had planned better, Jesus. She didn't blame the host. She didn't blame Jesus. What kind of Messiah are you? If you're fully in control, you should have known this was going to happen. She never blamed herself. And I love it when Max says, Mary didn't whine about the wine. Mary didn't whine about the wine. She just stated the problem. Then verse 4, Then Jesus said to her, Woman, they didn't call her mother or anything, or Mary or anything, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Why are you asking me? It's obvious this is not in the plan for revealing who he really was. He was not planning to wasting his first miracle on wine at a no-name wedding banquet in the middle of Galilee. That wasn't the plan. But then Mary entered the story. Mary, someone that he loved, who needed help. Perhaps between verse five, 4 and 5, we don't know. Did Jesus decide to do it, or Mary just walk away confident and calm at once? took a problem to Jesus, he could be trusted to take care of it completely, no matter how he took care of it? Doesn't say. But his mother did say to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. I'm not really sure what that means. Does it mean that, he'd already, that she already knew he was going to do it? Does it mean that whatever he decided really to do, if he decides not to do it, it's okay too? I don't really know what that means. 
Did Jesus look to heaven and get the okay from God like... Did he shrug his soldiers, say, well, it's my mom? How do you say no when mom asks? It's his mom asking. Jesus said to the servants, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast tasted the wine and licked his lips and said, This is the good stuff. Then lifted his glass and a toast to the bridegroom, complimented him for saving the best wine until the last. Why? Because you didn't save the best wine to the last. It was not commonplace in that day to do that. You gave the good stuff at the beginning, and when the guests were good and drunk after days of celebrating, you gave them the cheap stuff because they had no idea what it tastes like at that point anymore anyways. Unfortunately, some of you have been there. So it also says something about God, though, that only the good stuff is what God gives, no matter whether it comes at first or the last. God doesn't make junk. God only makes the good stuff. And while the master of the feast noted the quality of the wine, John wanted us to observe the quantity of the wine. There were six stone jars capable of holding 30 gallons apiece. And it says the servants filled them to the brim. Max tells us that amounts to 908 bottles of wine. So Jesus did not just make a little bit of wine to get them through he made an entire Napa Valley right there. Problem presented, prayers answered, crisis avoided, all because Mary entrusted her problem to Jesus. But Max in the book tells another version that made me really think about our actions and our reactions and how they don't involve Jesus most of the time and how things go south really quick when we don't involve Jesus in our problems and in our life. In this version, he says, Mary never involves Jesus. She took the master of the feast to task for poor planning. He took exception to her accusations. Mary stormed out of the party. The groom overheard the argument and lost his temper. The bride told her groom to forget marriage. If he couldn't manage his anger, he couldn't manage a home. By the end of the day, the guests left sad. The marriage was ended before it began, and Jesus shook his head and said, I could have helped if only I was asked. Does that describe situations that you've gotten into that have gotten out of control before you realized and how bad it's gotten so quickly and you wonder why? Because we don't invite Jesus into the problem before it escalates.